listening to The Curious Mother, a place where we unpack all things related to mothering. This is a community where we aim to create a comfortable space that allows for active discussion without judgment. Find us at thecuriousmother.com and follow us on social media. Our Instagram is at thecuriousmother. Welcome back to The Curious Mother. I'm Melissa Miller. And I'm Kristen Daly. Uh, Today, we are going to focus on a very hot topic, and we're going to talk about kids in sleep. We've already done moms in sleep, but now the big one is kids in sleep. Uh, I hope you all were thrilled to know uh, that we have a national expert on sleep that we can trust. And so we're going to dive into good information. And one of the reasons why I think this is so important is because Kids in sleep, it's really confusing. And I remember going through it and reading so many different theories and strategies and feeling overwhelmed with knowing what what was right, what I could trust. So Kristen, what's your experience in the information that's out there and why this is so confusing for moms? Yeah, so um, it, there is a lot of, fair, of different information available. And like back in 2010, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine actually did a review of the resources available for parents for sleep. And they found that there were 64 books um, that were popular that were being um, that parents were buying to find out about kids' sleep. And only about half of them were written by people who had any type of sleep training. That is crazy. <laughs> That's crazy. Yes. Yeah, and so – and it really has to do with the fact that – Um, I think that many people feel that because sleep is something that everybody does Mm -hmm. and it's a key component to health, that if they have found something that works for them, it should be something that works for everybody else. And um, I even had one time I had helped uh, somebody with sleep and they told me that they were now educating all of their friends and family about sleep for and which was flattering but at the same time I was you know it was one particular issue we had worked on and there's a lot more information available if you have the training the other challenge we have is that training is hard to get so it is um, I'm one of only 200 people who have my kind of specialization which is boarding through the American Academy of Sleep Medicine um, and which is now taken over by the Society for Behavioral Sleep Medicine. That's who does the boarding. Um, but the Society for Behavioral Sleep Medicine is a really small society. Yeah. I'm member number eight, I think. Wow. <laughs> and so um, what has happened is because we don't have a lot of really great formal training for people in sleep, people have kind of created their own. And um, a few summers ago, I had one of our interns research the different types of credentials that were out there. And there is a credential for doulas for, you know, that they can get um, that certifies them to work with sleep. And I don't even know what the doula education, how that lines up with sleep. I'm sure there is some component there. I've seen... um, People have even created their own credentials. So oh um, there's one group where they just I, – I mean, it's it founded by one person, and this uh, it's not just one, but there are several in the U.S. who a person said, I have come up with a way to help people learn how to have kids sleep. And so now I'm going to come up with my own name for the credential, and people can take my course and get credentialed in it. And so, yeah. That's really scary to me. It's scary to me that as the general public, myself included um, – we don't know who's got the right certification and we don't know who to trust. And yet this stuff is out there and we're just assuming because they have credentials that they're good credentials that yeah. we should be able to rely on. So I we're going to say it here. This is the good stuff, people. <laughs> you know, 
We're going to answer some questions today. You can trust Kristen. And also, we'll make sure to put up up on our website resources that you trust, Mm -hmm. books. You've written a lot of articles. And Mm -hmm. so we'll make sure to get a lot of things posted for people to turn to to read because this is important. Yeah, and I think that um, there are some really good books out there for parents. And so it's really just a matter – my hands down my favorite is by a woman named Jodi Mandel. And um, she has – she's boarded through – we have – a credential called the CBSM, which is um, Certified in Behavioral Sleep Medicine. Um, she's one of the original CBSM folks. And um, her book, Sleeping Through the Night, is phenomenal. Great. And all she does is pediatric sleep medicine. Awesome. Well, let's jump in a little bit today and talk about sleep. And we're going to start with infancy and then move up to kids. But let's start with just how do you start establishing a good sleeping pattern in your baby? Yeah. So, you know, the funny thing is, is that it really, the pattern of day and night um, with little ones, you know, young infants, the main thing that you're paying attention to is when are they wake? And when are they sleeping and when are they eating? You know, so you kind of have those three necessary activities for a newborn. And what you want to do is you want to try to make sure that feeding is something that comes after sleep, not precedes sleep. So it's just a very basic part of the pattern is every time they wake up, that's when you feed. And then you have a period of wakeful activity and then you let them you have them sleep but you disconnect feeding from sleeping and which i think is hard because i think a lot of people when their child is fussy they want to nurse them to sleep yes and so the the thing is is that nursing and sucking behavior is really soothing mm-hmm. for little ones and so it's not necessarily that you can't do that but you just want the pattern to be that they can soothe and you know say with a pacifier um, as they're going to sleep but then feeding is always going to come after sleep. Okay. Um, what a lot of parents will, will do is they try to get as much into the baby at the beginning of the night as is possible mm-hmm. to try to like basically fill them up so that they metabolically can last through the night. And that's actually the opposite of what we need to do to encourage really? sleeping through the night because if you it really a, a sleep is intended to be a time of fasting. And so we have to learn how to have that prolonged fasting. And the way we get that is by having a really solid breakfast. And so um, you don't expect babies to sleep through the night until they're at least 12 pounds. That's Mm -hmm. kind of the magic number. And after they are 12 pounds, the belief is that metabolically they're prepared to be able to have a period of fasting. Um, But what you want to do is you really want to amp up breakfast and wakefulness cues in the morning. And that is going to be the thing that's going to help teach them to sleep through the night. When you say wakefulness cues, what does that mean? Okay. So so um, we have this clock system in our brain, our circadian rhythm, and our clock system starts to get entrained pretty much actually while we're in utero. So the interesting thing is that um, babies get light exposure to their retinas through mom's stomach. Oh my gosh. And that light exposure starts to teach baby circadian rhythm, which I mean, the first, my first uh, child was born um, when I was still working in sleep medicine at night, <laughs> and so I was—I <laughs> felt like this poor kid is really going to be messed up from the very beginning because he's been exposed to light all night long because mom's working third shift. Um, luckily, that didn't, that wasn't really that big of a deal. But the, so we have these receptors in the back of our retinas, our retinal Zeitgebers, which is literally German for time giver, and these receptors are constantly picking up light exposure. And our brain's primary clock system is that we are supposed to be in light during the day and dark at night. 
So a very simple tool in teaching baby about wakefulness is making sure that light exposure occurs at the time we want them to wake up. So if we want them to be up at 6, we want to make sure that they're really stably getting light exposure at 6 a.m. Okay. And then you really want to try to keep them in as close to absolute darkness as is possible at night. So then their brain is learning by this really stable dark exposure, this is when we're supposed to be sleeping. There's even been um, some research into if mom is, say, on a smartphone or or on a device while she's nursing in the middle of the night, how much that affects baby's own clock system. Oh, wow. Because... We don't really think about it, but those smartphones and devices tend to have a lot of bright light exposure that's pretty close to our eyeballs. And so um, yeah. a baby's clock can actually get kind of confused. I'm thinking about, I mean, I the only way I could stay awake to nurse my babies was I would turn the television on and oh, watch yeah. old reruns to keep me awake. I kept the lights off, but the TV was on, and that yeah. probably was not a great idea, was it? No. Yeah, it's, I mean, <laughs> you know, I... I think I guess I was lucky in a way because uh, we had a very tiny house when uh, we first had kids. And so um, I knew, I, of course, to keep my kiddos in the dark because I wanted them to learn how to sleep at night. But I also, we only had one TV and it would have woken my husband if I turned it on. So <laughs> I seriously would like nurse in this chair in the dark. Um, but then again, I, I had an intention of teaching them to sleep very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> so there was that. So maybe um, podcasts are a good idea yes, to listen to in the middle of the night. Wonderful if you can cue them up. You know, like that's kind of the hard part. Is um, right. what I often will, will say is that this is where kind of our old fashioned MP3 players probably were a better option than even our smartphones because it's just so much light exposure. Right. So turn but them yes. upside down if you're exactly listen. Yeah, hit play and then turn it over immediately. <laughs> but absolutely, and so so light is one of the ways that our brain knows wakefulness and sleep. But the other way is also feeding. Um, so whenever we consume food and we then have insulin activity, that insulin activity is telling our system to be awake as well. So that's why um, when they start solids, even though um, it's kind of painful to try to do, it's great to try to load them up with the solids in the morning so that they're having. Their, their brain is really learning this is when we get to have um, food. And so that's another part of it. And then also excitement and activity. So um, one of the things that's really reinforcing to babies is to look into our eyes and get positive affection. So what I say is that it's really good to make sure that when you wake up in the morning, you're going to have light, you're going to have feeding, but you're also going to have a lot of positive emotional engagement. You know, I want you to come in kind of happy to be, to see them, happy they're alive. And um, that positive emotional connection is also going to excite their brain and help reinforce this time. So when we have kids who are struggling to learn to sleep through the night, one of the things that I will tell mom is it's okay to feed. We want to try to hopefully taper off those feedings at night, but you really don't want to have any eye contact at night because you don't want this to be a visit from baby, right. you know? Right. <laughs> and so that's where you really kind of, you know, you're going to look away they, and it's, it's, it's kind of hard because baby wants to seek out eye contact. Um, but what you want them to learn is the time that they get happy, excited mom is in the morning when the lights are on and everything is bright. So that's going to help them learn that in the middle of the night, the only thing that's being met are metabolic needs, not emotional needs. This is fascinating. It's so interesting to hear how important the role of eating but also interaction is in sleep. I mean, these are not things that I heard about. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. So next question then, um, 
I think we've all heard of sleep training, yes. right? So when do we, when should we think about starting this? Yeah. So um, sleep training is, it's kind of um, controversial in, in some areas. Um, it's funny. I often want to write about it and then I, I find it is such a hot button issue. Like yep. if you want to see um, people go nuts in um, mom blogs, like start talking about sleep training versus not. Yeah. Um, and so what it's tend to view be viewed as this either or kind of thing, like on-demand feeding um, and soothing versus trying to train baby to sleep. And I always like to try to blend the two because it, it doesn't need to be so black and white. Okay. Um, so basically it's, it's not recommended to start prior to six weeks because you're really trying to get a good healthy pattern of eating and particularly mm-hmm. for nursing moms they're trying to build up a solid milk supply so any opportunity to have that stimulation is important and so it's not recommended prior to six weeks after six weeks of age you can start with some really basic principles for sleep training and so that kind of goes into the circadian stuff you know um, working on making sure that they have this prolonged dark period for when for nighttime. Um, you can also start to teach what is the desired sleep environment. So um, the thing is, is that babies will recognize their sleep environment based on the scent, sound, and touch of where they sleep. And so for co-sleeping families, what happens is mom and dad and or dad um, become part of the sleep onset association. So the smell of parent plus the touch of parent and even the sound of parent is very, very soothing. Um, and for families who want to go the co-sleeping route, that's that's going to be totally fine. But for families who don't want to co-sleep, what we want to do is we want to have scent, sound, and touch be something other than parent-associated. Okay. So it can be good to even start with naps, um, though they're going to have a lot more drive for sleep at the beginning of the night. So mm-hmm. you want to think about the environment in which baby first falls asleep. And so you know, a really good example is if you rock baby to sleep in the in the chair and then lay them gently in their crib. The hard part is is that the rocking in the chair and contact with you is their sleep onset association, not right. the crib. Right. So the tricky part is is it means really putting baby in crib while they're still slightly, you know, while they're awake, um, but they also are tired and ready for sleep. And letting them learn how to fall asleep in that crib environment. Um, I We always recommend um, following the, you know, SID safety recommendations, at least as far as bedding. You don't want to have um, bedding in the crib. Um, bumpers are not considered a good idea, um, you know, just for the risk of accidental suffocation. A lot of the SIDS recommendations are all related to accidental suffocation. So we do understand that SIDS is likely its own condition and probably right. very separate from um, suffocation. There are lots of different theories about SIDS. Nothing has really been fully defined yet. It is believed to be related to a an irregularity in the heart and the way okay. the heart is working. Um, but the so challenge, unfortunately, yeah. nothing you could really protect from in the crib. No, um, but the, the you know the issue is is that when babies accidentally suffocate, um, one of the ways that we know people had suffocated is they get these dots in their eyes that are called petechia, and um, infants can suffocate without developing petechia. So the thing is is that it. Um, it ends up being really difficult to know if it was suffocation or if it was sudden infant death syndrome. So any sudden infant death is considered SIDS. Um, So all of the recommendations are really just making sure baby stays far away from suffocation. 
So I, you know, you want the crib environment, tight sheet, no blankets, no um, bumper. And um, if you are using a pacifier, which um, some research has demonstrated uh, is beneficial for sleep continuity, Mm. you want to always put the pacifiers in the same part of the bed. You know, so basically when baby's old enough to be able to replace their own pacifier and seek it out, they know exactly which corner of the crib they need to be reaching for. And then it can be good to have several of that type of pacifier in that corner. So the hand is always grabbing the right Right. thing. Right. And so you want that environment to be pretty consistent. With sound, I always recommend white noise. And um, for a very long time, that was my very my typical baby shower gift was I would um I, there there was a company that used to make a stuffed animal that you would tie to the outside of the crib that also produced white noise and um and that was the thing that um I would always give to my friends when it's they were great having gift. yeah <laughs> and uh so white noise is great because it just allows for some filtering of any sounds in the house um, and also the brain learns this is the sound of my sleep environment. Yes. Yeah. And so you can start with um, heartbeat sounds, but I always like to use just very typical um, a kind of a whirring fan sound. Um, and scent, if they are accustomed to being to mom or dad being present, you can actually – there are a couple of ways you can use scent to your advantage. So one might be sleeping with the crib sheet yourself before you put it on the crib, and that can scent it with your own scent so that then baby is smelling you. Um, you know, same thing. If you use one of those sleep sacks, you can sleep with it too. Um, but once they're accustomed to their environment, they'll they'll do okay. The scent piece is relatively easily learned. Um, and the thing to know is, it takes about three days for them to adapt to a, a new sleep environment. So it's not you know first day is going to be the biggest challenge, and then every day after that, it gets a little bit easier. I'm going to bring up something fairly controversial and tell on myself. Um, <laughs> Our daughter, who's our oldest child, uh, was really colicky and was not a great sleeper. And so uh, after a lot of horrible sleepless nights, um, we started having her sleep on her stomach, and it it was great, and she slept. So then when our son was born, we made him a belly sleeper, and he Mm -hmm. slept beautifully and amazing. Uh, My daughter would never be swaddled. She broke out of them. She woke herself up all the time. So she just, she wasn't getting good sleep. And so we are stomach sleepers Mm -hmm. and um, talked about it with our pediatrician. We really, really felt strongly that we had to do this. So what's, what's your opinion on belly sleeping? Yeah. So it's interesting because one of the reasons why sleeping on your back or infants being on their back is part of the SIDS recommendation is the belief that their face can get wedged into the crib and that can be a source of accidental suffocation. Plus, there was a study done looking at arousal and sleep um, in infants, and what they found was infants who sleep on their back, who sleep supine, uh, wake up about 13 to 15 times an hour, whereas infants who sleep prone on their stomach only wake up about two to four times an hour. And so this was viewed as one of the ways you can help make sure that infant is going to be able to stay alive is because if they wake up more, they will be more likely to be... um, they, they just will be less likely to experience SIDS. Um, having been very familiar with that research, I have to admit that I went in the opposite direction because I, the way I read that study is you're going to have a deeper sleeping infant if they're on their, their tummy. So um, true confession, all three of mine slept on their stomachs. And the first, uh, my oldest, we initially only did it with naps. Um, 
part of it was because I really, the tummy time thing was just not going well. But one time I tried to do tummy time and he fell into this deep nap and I was like, well, here you go. We'll just put you on your stomach for naps. And, um, and then after a couple of weeks of him napping on his stomach and, and his naps just being so beautiful, he would really struggle to fall asleep at night in the bed, uh, in the crib. And so I ended up deciding to let him sleep on his tummy all the time. He had excellent head control. I, and my, my pediatrician and I went really toe-to-toe about this. Um, you know, because even, I don't know if you went through this, Melissa, but um, my uh, daycare had to have a letter from the pediatrician saying it was okay for our kids to nap prone. Wow. And, and my pediatrician would not sign the letter. And, you know, and he said, I understand. I know that you're familiar with the research. I know exactly the risk that you're willing to take. He said, you know, as soon as I put my name on this form, I am basically endorsing this. And should anything happen, I have just made myself liable and I won't do that. And it was interesting because uh, my babies would not be able to sleep at daycare because they, they just couldn't settle on their backs. And, um, you know, eventually the daycare finally would just flip them and let them sleep on their tummies. But they said, you know, if anybody, you know, they were, they were very worried about their liability. Yeah. I did not have that experience. In fact, I feel really grateful that, um, I had a lot of encouragement for having them sleep on their tummies. Yeah. My pediatrician, um, I think I've already said, like I was a hot mess. Like I was super anxious. I actually had severe postpartum anxiety. And so I would cry to her all the time. And she was like, listen, if this works, you know, she kind of knew the research on SIDS too. And mm-hmm. she said, I, you know, I don't think that you, this is a SIDS risk. So if this is what helps you sleep, her sleep. Um, and then all of my parents, my in-laws, they were all like, well, we all slept on our stomach. Mm-hmm. You guys slept on your stomach. And so I felt really relieved and calmed by all these people saying, yeah, why wouldn't you? Yeah. So I was thankful for that because I knew I was the only one out of my friends who mm-hmm. their my baby was sleeping on their stomach. And I think a lot of – I did feel some judgment of like, oh, that's pretty risky. What kind yeah. of a mom are you? Yeah, so. it, it's interesting because the biggest sits risk is not sleeping in a crib. You know, um, that's – when um, they've looked at SIDS cases, a lot of the biggest risk is um, sleeping in an environment that infant wasn't intended to sleep in. Like couch is actually one of the scariest places for infants to sleep, and um, so it's it's difficult. I mean, if I had unlimited time and resources, I definitely would want to dig into that particular part of the SIDS recommendation because I do think that it is, um, I, I just, I don't know that it sets us up for success. Yeah. Um, but that being said, I did have a friend who lost an infant to SIDS and, um, it was so devastating. Like, and so there's just this part of me that's like, if it means we have to put up with, with kids being a little bit more arousable and maybe struggling to learn how to sleep, um, I'd rather do that than anybody ever losing a baby. So that's, I think, um, I, I just, I hope that one day we'll be able to see potentially the research shift in that particular area. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's talk about crying it out. Yes. What does that mean? Uh, what are the different methods? Yeah. So crying it out is viewed as like the ultimate infant torture. <laughs> and, you know, and, and to be honest, like I don't um, I, I don't necessarily agree with it um, because it, it, we don't need to be that extreme. So basically with cry it out, what it is, is you are putting your infant in this in their sleep environment 
and you're just seeing how long it takes them to settle and then you know eventually they're going to learn I have to sleep here and I they learn how to self-soothe and you eventually end up with a pretty good sleeper and the thing is is that I think it, it stays in popularity because it's effective um, there is a lot of debate about how um, harmful those days of crying are for the infants and I, I don't think we have a great feel of whether or not it really is a big deal but there is a happy medium um, which is where you put them in the environment when they get distraught you come in you settle and then you go back out you know and so it's basically like you allow for some soothing you don't necessarily keep them in a distraught state the entire time um, and but you always just make sure you're exiting before they fall asleep and that is to me the kinder gentler way so um, we might do scheduled checking um, which might be every five minutes you're going to go in the room for a minute and then a week later we'll change that to 10 and then 15 so you're increasing the amount of time that, that they're self-soothing but you're not creating just a lot of distress um, I have had some families I've worked with, though, who have said that um, they found that the soothing was actually more stimulating mm-hmm. and distressing. Yeah. And so that is where they went in the direction of just letting baby cry it out. And, I mean, and it does eventually work. So that's kind of what it is. Um, but uh, attachment parenting folks in particular will say that it wrecks the infant's sense of safety. And um, I don't know that we know for sure. Okay. Yeah. I think that's a good balanced view, right? Like mm-hmm. it's it's kind of nice to look at both sides and say different things work for different families and different kids and everybody probably needs to figure out what their comfort level is and what's actually working for sleep. Yeah, and well and the thing is is that you always want your child to have a repertoire of ways that they feel soothed. You don't want them to have just one way. Um I remember I had one family I had worked with where the um the child was a toddler and All the child knew for soothing was contact with mom. So it was 24-7 contact with mom and um, contact with mom, nursing, and snacks. And the thing was that this was a family that was really in a lot of distress because uh, the toddler was just never able to be by himself. And that was – it was really hard on them. So we want them to have – the opportunity to feel connected and soothed, but also willing to go and explore their world and right. have some internal resources too. Right. I'm also glad to hear that um, it's it's nice for people to hear that crying it out doesn't mean putting baby in a crib and walking away and never allowing yourself to come back. Yeah. And because I remember trying to do some crying it out, and and it was torture for me. Yes. I remember sitting outside on our front step sobbing because I felt like the cruelest mother in the world. Yeah. Um, reminding myself, this is good for her. This is good for her. But yeah. we, I eventually broke down and I did an in-between, right? Yes. Like I couldn't let her cry for an hour to sleep. That was, that felt brutal. Yeah. So we found a middle ground, but it also felt like, I felt like I was breaking the rules. Like I wasn't <laughs> being a good mom because yeah. I had read, it's time to cry it out. Yeah. Don't go back in. So I'm glad to know it's not black and white. No. And it's funny how, you know, you're bringing up the breaking the rules. People get very rigid about what's right or wrong with sleep and yeah. it should never be that 
black and white, you know. And I think that one of the other things that's hard is you're going to get advice from all sorts of people. And um, and a lot of them have raised babies and they know exactly what worked for them. But it is, it is really important to understand that every everybody's sleep pattern is going to be a little bit different. And yeah. particularly even comparing notes about total sleep time. I mean, the, the difference in infants of what's normal can be a, as much as six to eight hours. So you can have an infant who's an incredibly strong sleeper who sleeps, you know, upwards of 18 hours a day. And then you can have an infant whose demand for sleep is much lower and only really needs about 12 hours of sleep per day. Wow. And so you can't compare notes with other folks because you're working with different bodies. Right. Doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. Mm-mm. It's just needs are different. Yes. Okay. So when it comes to sleep, what is it that really matters and what do moms need to be paying attention to? Yeah, I think it's, it is really, it goes back to clock system. So you want to have a pretty regular pattern because we are going to get the best opportunity from sleep if we know that if our brain knows exactly when this is supposed to happen. In particular, when we sleep, we have the greatest release of human growth hormones. So that's really critical for our growth and development. Really? Um, One of the ways that I will encourage my middle schooler to sleep more is the fact that he would like to be over six feet tall. And I keep telling him that the only way you're really going to get there is if you max out your human growth hormone. And the way you're going to get there is by making sure you prioritize sleep. So that's, that's been my little trick to try to get him sleeping more. Um, really fascinating. Yeah. So <laughs> you want to have the same pattern and you want to really aim for that same pattern seven days a week. Our brains do not understand weekends, so they want the same thing seven days a week. Kids in particular have very little flexibility about wake time. So once they have learned to wake up, whether it's 6 a.m., 5 a.m., 7 a.m., they are going to be pretty stuck on that wake time. So keeping them up late on a Saturday night, they're not going to sleep in. And so instead, you're going to have disaster on your hands. Um, You want to be pretty consistent with naps as well. You know, and so the thing is, is that our brain um, learns to anticipate naps. And so if we can have nap times be pretty set, it's going to give us greater opportunity to take advantage of nap. If infant has slept more than 20 minutes, then unfortunately, their brain has registered sleep and the nap is over. So one of the things that sometimes will happen is we'll hope that the nap is going to be two hours and right. then they're up in 30 right. minutes and they can't go back to sleep at that point, so don't expect them to. But what that might mean is they might need a little bit earlier bedtime that night. I do believe in waking kids up from naps if they're running long because the thing to remember is that you still want them to be able to sleep again that night. And so um, if you if they're consistently taking, say, a two-hour nap, but one day they're going long, it still is better to wake them up because you want them to be able to go to sleep at the normal time that night. Okay. I did the total opposite. I kind of followed the never wake a sleeping baby. Uh-huh. Um, (laughs) Not at first. At first, I, like, followed this very rigid schedule of waking my kids. And then I let them sleep. So, um, but you're right. Then bedtimes would get pretty hard some nights. And the other thing is, is that I don't believe in getting rid of naps unless you have to. You know, and and so the thing is, is that there there have been, there are some folks who advocate for getting rid of naps around, like, age two, age three. And what we see is if they are still doing well with a nap, then let them keep the nap. However, when they're about to start kindergarten, you want to, that summer, you want to eliminate the nap because you, I don't, unless you happen to live in one of those wonderful communities that still let their kids nap in kindergarten, we do not. Right, and right. so um, all three of mine were still napping as they were approaching kindergarten. And we would spend the summer eliminating the nap because I knew they were going to have to learn how to do a full day at school. And I didn't want them melting down at school because we hadn't gotten rid of the nap. 
nap. So, you know, protect that nap. Um, if you don't protect the nap, then sometimes they will go away, but they may they may not be able to get all the sleep that they need at night. Um, and that's where you can have some really cranky sleep deprived kiddos. Yeah. Um, both my kids na- dropped naps on their own. So mm-hmm. even at daycare, they they sat there on their cots, did the not time. sleep. Yeah, uh, they just they. They did it on their own about three and a half. Yeah. Should I have adjusted their nighttime schedule? You you hope to like and, and the thing about kids is they they're unlike us, uh, you know, where we tend to suppress our sleep yep. and do all sorts of stimulating things. Kids usually have a pretty strong drive for sleep, and so they're not normally going to um, you know they'll t- normally make up their sleep. However. You do want to make sure they have plenty of opportunity to. So I don't like kids using media in the evenings um, because that's just – that's going to confuse their brain and that could suppress sleep. Okay. Um, I often say that it's great for them to get on devices first thing in the morning because we're trying to teach them to be awake then anyways. Yeah. Um, and then no devices after dinner. And okay. it's it's still a pretty hard – and my, my kids are, you know um, – getting up there in eight well 14 10 and 8 and we still do no tv after dinner like so devices means tv as well yes yeah so so like no watching american idol at eight o'clock at night i know (laughs) (laughs) i know it and you know it it is it is a little challenging we actually do our like family kind of tv time on saturday mornings you know because so record it and watch it when it's good for you when it's the right time i mean that's the great thing about this age is we might have devices everywhere but we can also control when we get our media right right (laughs) So, yeah, I guess that's my next question. Like, after we know what matters, um, how does this translate to older kids? Yeah, so the biggest thing I always want parents of older kids to understand is that our window of sleep debt runs about two weeks. So if you have... What does that mean? And so what that means is that if you have a really bad night of disrupted sleep, so actually just last night my kids were up easy hour and a half, two hours beyond their normal bedtime... Um, that is likely to affect them for the next two weeks. Two yes, weeks? Yes, it takes us two weeks to kind of overcome those kind of uh, – those insults on our sleep pattern. So – Wait, wait. So I'm <laughs> sorry. This is blowing my mind yes. right now. Yeah. So – but also I'm thinking, okay, so your kids were up late Saturday night, but most likely next weekend they're going to be up late too, and they haven't recovered. Yeah. What? Yeah. So that's where, um, you know, like things like sleepovers, because the reason why everybody was up so late last night was a sleepover. So with sleepovers, you really – I like – our rule in our house is never more than once every two weeks um, because I just don't want – like a tired kid is a hyperactive kid. Yep. It is a cranky kid. It is an irrational kid. Mm-hmm. Um, like when my son was seven, he – I thought he had had this rapid onset of depression because he was really irrational and crying all the time for like a four-week period. And um, it turned out – that he had been waking up at like four or five a.m. watching TV. So his oh, I remember sleep, you telling yeah, me about his this. sleep being curtailed by two hours turned into what looked like depression. And so the thing is, is that they they're not great at regulating this, and it affects them for a while. You know, we went through something similar with my daughter being highly moody and melting down, and I found out that she had been sneaking a flashlight in her room at bedtime to stay up reading, and she oh, was wow. staying up late reading. Yeah. 
And I remember doing the same thing when I was a kid, but I mean, it was horrible to do with her. She was awful. <laughs> yes. And and they're not great at saying this is what's happening. Right. And sleep is important. <laughs> yeah. I should be sleeping. So really, um, I, you know, sometimes what I'll say is if you know you're going to have a ton of late nights, if you are a family that's just going to be, they, you know, summer nights mean being up really late. Um, it might be worthwhile to see if they can learn to sleep later and just kind of shift the entire schedule for the summer. Um, older kids can do that. Younger kids usually can't. Okay. And so the, the hard part is, is it really is for their best interest to not have too many late nights. Okay. Uh, putting naps back in, would that be helpful? For some kids, it can. Um, the challenge is, is that many of us cannot nap right. during the day. In fact, even as I asked the question, my kids would never nap. Never. Yeah, you, you just got a picture in your head, didn't you, of what that would be like, and no. <laughs> it's not going to happen, and no, they won't They won't make it up. Okay. And so, yeah, that's that's the hard part. But that's huge to know that it takes two weeks, because I think normally we're like, oh, it's been a couple of days, they're fine. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, I know that this episode is going to go a little long, but because there's so much to talk about with kids and sleep, um, I'm going to share a new challenge in our house mm-hmm. that I'd love to address. We've recently discovered that my daughter is a sleepwalker. And not just sleepwalking, but she's going outside. Yes. And um, I woke up early one morning. I leave. We live in a ranch, so I leave through my bedroom door out back, and my dog and I go walking uh, when it's still dark out. Um, and our the back door to our house was wide open. And we... Uh, got mad at my husband, like, I can't believe you didn't lock up the house last night. What is wrong with you? We got mad at the husband. (laughs) (laughs) He was mad at himself. Until at breakfast that morning, my daughter was like, Mom, it was the craziest thing. I woke up at 2.30 this morning, and I was asleep on our outdoor couch. And it was like, wait, what? So just this last week, uh, I woke up in the morning and um, heard the garbage truck going by and thought, Gosh, that sounds so loud. And I went out, and our front door was wide open. Uh, so we we have a security camera that records footage. And so we went back, and we saw that at 11.30 the night before, my daughter unlocked the front door, went outside to look around, and then went back to sleep, left the door open. Mm-hmm. I also want to mention that my dog came out about 30 seconds after she went back inside and sat out on our front step and guarded us all night long. I have I know. <laughs> I'm hoping that we'll be able to we would be able to put up the video. It is the greatest dog in the history of mankind. <laughs> we, I, I'm definitely going to post the video so you all can see what happened. But let's talk about sleepwalking yes. and night terrors and what do we do? Should yes. I? How, how do we keep her safe? And is it okay to wake a sleepwalker? Yeah. So the funny thing is that you put sleepwalking and night terrors together because they actually are very much a very similar thing. Um, So the thing about sleepwalking is it occurs when we are in a very, very deep sleep. And so it's not usually related to any dream content. And the hard part is is that they have total amnesia to what happened because really – Cognitive functioning is not active during this right. time. And my yeah. daughter, when she saw the video of herself walking, she screamed at first, and she was yeah. like, "What am I doing?" Oh, and I bet no that scared memory. her. Yeah, yeah. And that is the really hard part um, because they don't. They obviously because their their cognitive um, function isn't turned on. They don't know they're doing it. And um, and it is. It's like watching yourself do something totally out of control. Night eating is a similar process, um, and night terrors. And so the thing to know is that. 
it is totally fine to wake a sleepwalker. They're just going to be incredibly disoriented. And so that's why the recommendation is often like just kind of coax them back to their room um, rather than waking them up. Because um, same thing with night terrors. A lot of times parents, um, they're they're horrible to watch. They're so scary. Hannah had them growing up. And she was irate and and oftentimes would be like desperate for me to help her. And it took me a while to realize that she wasn't coherent. No. And, you know, and if you were to ask her in the morning what was happening, she has no clue what happened. No memory. And so um, it's really just best to to know that you want to keep them safe, but it's not up to you to try to like break it or calm them down because there's no conscious awareness. Um, They really have no clue they're doing it. Um, But that's where we got to do We got to work on keeping her safe. Yeah. You know, and so there are some workarounds. Um, one is you can move the deadbolt higher on the door so she can't reach it. Um, you know, some folks will switch to a keyed lock, and the only thing that's risky about that is you want to imagine where is that key? Could we get out if, if we needed to get out quickly? Right, you know, right. and so that's where I get a little nervous about that switch. We actually just recently installed a new back door that has a big window in it. So we had to use a, a key deadbolt and it's already driving us nuts. <laughs> so, um, so that can be one workaround. I wouldn't, I don't like for kids to be locked in their room. I think that that can make them feel insecure and unsafe. So um, I don't like that. Um, but another, an option would be to put a bell on the door. Yes. And those can be installed relatively easily. But that way you would be aware when it happens, um, which probably is the best thing for yep. keeping her safe. I mean, the hard part with that is it might, you'd also still be sleeping with one ear open. But if it's loud enough and you can trust it, it would it would be better. Um, and it could also be good to set up just a very simple physical barrier to the door, you yeah. know, um, yep. so that she has a reminder or a cue. Um, sometimes we'll do this with night eating is we'll create kind of like these little funny barriers. So there's a little bit, it makes it just complicated enough that they don't do it, you know. And so yeah. if like there's a little bit of a barrier to getting to the door, it's less likely she'll open it. Okay. Kristen, this is so much fun to talk about sleep. And and we have gotten a lot of questions about sleep. And so mm-hmm. keep them coming um, to our listeners. We love to know your questions. We, want, we are going to be posting lots of great articles, as Kristen has written, on our website. But uh, leave us comments or send us emails about your specific questions if we haven't answered it, because we can always talk about sleep here. <laughs> always. It's fun. Yes. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you so much for sharing this incredible information. Um, And to our listeners, thanks so much for coming back. We're glad to have you here. Make sure that you visit us on Instagram at The Curious Mother and that you visit our website. Uh, Subscribe uh, to our podcast so that you can be the first to know when we have a new podcast uh, available. And we hope you have a great week. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of The Curious Mother. Learn more at www.thecuriousmother.com, where you will find resources related to episode topics. Please join our community and add your voice. Follow us on Instagram at The Curious Mother. Thanks for listening.